Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have three of our BiblioGuides ladies with us today, Tanya Arnold, Lara Yeverino, and Sarah Kim. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Tanya, Sarah, and Lara, welcome back to another Plumfield Reads Monthly Book Club. We're taking a little break from the Miss Mantle books, and we're switching it up. This month, we are talking about Evelyn Sibley Lapman and Bargain Bride. I want to welcome all of our listeners. I want to remind you that this book club will absolutely have spoilers. That's the point. So if you have not had a chance to read the book yet and you don't want to hear any spoilers, we encourage you to just bookmark this episode and come back to this one once you've had a read. If you don't mind spoilers or if you're thinking about handing this book to a teenager and would like to know what's in it before you get that far, stick around and have a listen. But we aren't going to do spoilers just quite yet. What we'll do right now is we'll give you a little scene setting and talk a little bit about the book club. And then when we are getting ready to talk about spoilers, we'll tell you with total clarity so you can pause and save it for another time. So Tanya, Sarah, and Lara, thank you for joining us as always. And thank you. As always, for hosting the Plumfield Reads Book Club discussion in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network, which is an alternative to social media. You can do it as well as Facebook, Instagram, or whatever. Or if those places are just too busy, too noisy, too distracting for you, you can just come to the BiblioGuides online community, which has just the book talk. That's it. No ads, no chaos, just wonderful ladies and guys talking about wonderful books. So feel free to join us. The link for the BiblioGuides online community and the Plumfield Read section is in the show notes. So today we are talking about a book I had never heard of until a year ago. And this one is one that I think parents are going to want to know about in advance, but I think it's wonderful. And I've handed this book off to my, uh, my tween daughter with no concerns whatsoever. But I have no idea what you ladies think. <laughs> so all of you are mamas. Is this a good one? Is this one you would hand to your child? I loved it. I've read it twice. I read it in the spring, and then I read it just a couple weeks before the recording of this episode. And I loved it again. And both times I read it in one sitting. Primarily the pacing is so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. But as far as what I handed it to a child, a tween child, I think I would. Mm -hmm. I would definitely, I have a 16-year-old daughter, I would hand it to her, no problem. And definitely be asking her to come talk to me about it. Just because I would want to hear all of her insights and what struck her and what impacted her, what she saw in it. I would be excited to have a conversation with her. It would be a fun mother-daughter book club, I think. I love that you said that you read it in one sitting. I did too. The only thing I did was get up to make more tea or run to the bathroom. <laughs> and then I came back and continued reading. <laughs> Laura, did you say yeah. that you read it really quickly as well? Yes, I, I think I read it in one sitting as well. And would I hand it to... My kids are older. And so that it wouldn't be so much the content considerations or things, but 
it would depend on the child to understand if they could translate the ideas from that time to this time and not let uh. their experiences today color the ideas as they're presented in a different time. Yeah. Context. Context here is so important. Mm -hmm. right. Sarah, what about you? Well, I didn't read it in one sitting, probably because I started it in the late evening and just got too tired. But it really <laughs> engaged me immediately. And I wanted to keep reading. So I was excited to pick it up the next day. I think I finished it in two or three days. I would definitely give this to my 13 year old to read. And I think it's kind of a perfect age for this kind of book where I feel like nothing is really black and white in this book. There's yeah. a lot of nuance, uh, it raises a lot of questions. It really makes you think it's kind of perfect for that age. And definitely, like Tanya, I think it's one that would be great to discuss. Yay. For sure. Yay. Diane, what about you? Well, I think I did the same thing Sarah did and started it in the evening. So I didn't sit and read the whole thing, but it was engaging. It, right away, you wonder, what's happening here? I have to find out how this goes. <laughs> but um, maybe we should mention it's uh, about 150 pages long. It's it's not 300 mm -hmm. pages and everybody, you know, spent hours and hours doing this. So I think that for a tween who's been reading good books and old books, that this is not so terribly challenging as it might seem if you just, like, this is the first book you picked up. There are some interesting mm -hmm. things happening there, but put yourself back a hundred years. I think that yes. we, all yes. of us need to be teaching our kids how to go back in history and view things from their point of view and not ours. Yeah, I agree. When I think about the content that's being offered to tweens today, I think of um, a very popular series, The Keeper of the Lost Cities. It's a series that I think has a lot of problems in it. Uh, very interesting concept. Lots of lots of opinions about that series. But I think about that, which is being marketed to our 10 to 15-year-olds. And then I think about this. And I think that this has maybe a more shocking plot line, but much more wholesome content and uh, much more uh, edifying of a read. And so that's why I would have, I have no hesitation handing this to my daughter at all. In fact, she's reading it now and it, it's very, it's, it's delightful to be able to talk about together. Well, there's a difference between being shocked or surprised by an event in a story and the need to constantly be making you outraged. Mm -hmm. this, yes. this is not yes, the yes, same yes. as you're suddenly angry or mad about something. And there's so much adrenaline yeah. in the books today. It is it is really about baiting the hook for one adrenaline rush after another. I feel that way about Percy Jackson as well, that you just you get lost in this world and you just can't come up for air. And so when we say, you know, we sat down and read this 150 page book in one sitting or in two sittings, you're right. You, you were so right to clarify. This is not a 300-page young adult novel with that's just soaked with adventure and making the child a hero of an extraordinary world. This is a wholesome graduation from Little House on the Prairie or Anne of Green Gables or Little Women. I think, it, I think it's a, a lovely next step. 
I think it's probably important we tell our listeners why we're having this qualifying conversation at the beginning. So without spoiling the book, I think it's important that you know that the the point of the story is in the title, Bargain Bride. You can go to our website and find our pretty detailed review. It does have spoilers, but you can get a very good understanding of what's going on in the book without having the book completely ruined. Jill Morgan of Purple House Press always says that she appreciates that our reviews tell you just enough to want to know more, but not so much that it totally ruins the story. So that that's definitely our goal. But what we have in this story is families who have headed out west on the Oregon Trail and are trying to settle the west. And we have in here a young girl who is married at the age of 10 to a good and honorable man who does not claim her as a bride until she's 15. So there is nothing scandalous afoot here. He is married to her legally because that allows him to claim twice as much of a homestead for their future life together. It's a very good arrangement, and it's very common practice at that time. So a lot of us are thinking, child, bride, that sounds very scandalous. <laughs> um, but given the context of the historical setting, it's totally commonplace. It's appropriate. And it is told very wholesomely and beautifully. I'd like to share. I've read probably 90% of Keeper of the Lost Cities. I didn't read any Percy Jackson, so I can't speak to those. And I can see the draw mm-hmm. to Keeper of the Lost Cities, especially maybe the first one to four books. After that, Yeah, it breaks down. Yeah. (laughs) That's a whole different conversation. But one of the things that I think we're looking at with a book like Bargain Bride, you have a 15-year-old main character. And we're talking about a book about 100 years old. It's it's really more like 180 years Mm -hmm. when it takes place because we have it as the time period about 1843. So we're talking westward expansion. It's a long time ago. It's a very different time period from the time we live in now. And all eyes are on westward expansion. That seems to be a topic that's talked about. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of emotions surrounding that time period. So what you find in this book compared to a book like Keeper of the Lost Cities is Keeper of the Lost Cities has a lot of teenage angst in it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that all teenagers live in angst. Mm -mm. But I think we promote it as if they do. And I think that's short-selling a lot of teenagers, frankly. I think they're much more capable. They're a lot more deep thinkers than that. And what you see in Bargain Bride is you see a character who's written, who acts like a 15-year-old, yes, who's trying to figure out her world, who has lacked a good mentor, mm-hmm. who has memories of before, you know, there's kind of this delineation in her life of like a before and an after of certain events. And you see real world experiences based on that time period. And you see complex conversations, complex situations. I think teenagers can relate to One of the things that I think is brilliant, she shows you something and she almost leads you to a conclusion and then she gives you more information. And then you find out that you made an assumption that might not be correct. And she does it about multiple characters. So you can start to think, I just need to step back and be an observer here and set my ideas, my opinions, what I think this person is or what I think that person is aside. And I think teenagers are fully capable of these types of conversations and figuring it out. And that's why I think it's a good meat for them compared to a dessert series. I mean, in all honesty, I probably read Keeper of the Lost Cities one book a day. Yes, exactly. Pace as well. It's 
interesting. You don't come up for air. Mm -hmm. I literally can't remember anything about that series. See, they pace equally. Mm -hmm. You could not come up for air on Bargain Bride too. Like she, she just walks you through this narrative that you just want to, you're with the character and you're just feeling empathy for her. Mm -hmm. And it has all the classic things that a main character has in some of the classic books. And you just see what happens and you're experiencing it and your own ideas and thoughts are being challenged. And I just think it's really masterfully written, I think. Yeah, it has a great plot, but it's not just the plot. There's a lot more there underneath for you to think about. Yes. And, And I love how you said that she really challenges your assumptions and how teenagers are really ripe for these conversations. I would, I would amplify that and go so far as to say, I think that teenagers are better at those conversations than a lot of us adults are. I think that they are more flexible in their thinking still. And I think that a book like this could do much. It could benefit from the discussion of a teenager, and it could also do much to aid a teenager. So I think that this is a book that gives as well as it gets. And I think that teenagers would be just a really perfect audience for a book like this. And so is it fair to say that all of us really appreciated this book? And I mean, we would recommend it. Yes, nodding all around. Good. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to make sure. That Absolutely. <laughs> there wasn't somebody to say, well, actually, I thought this book was terrible. <laughs> that would make for a very interesting podcast. <laughs> we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> for some we have book. a couple of those coming up. <laughs> there is a book that Diane is reading out of love for me. And that is it. <laughs> it's going to ruin everything if I like it. <laughs> It's going to be hilarious if you like it, but I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> oh, so stay tuned. That one's coming up soon. <laughs> so I had an interesting reaction to Bargain Bride that I maybe I haven't consciously had before. Maybe it was because I was thinking, oh, I'm going to have to talk about this. <laughs> um, I'm not just reading it to experience it. Right. And that was that my initial reaction at finishing the book was a very overwhelming emotional response. Mm. And then I sat with it for a bit mm-hmm. and thought, I need to think about this. And the first thing that came to my head was, who's telling this story and what point of view are we getting? Because mm, it's important question. when you're hearing a story to remember who's telling it, what's their authority mm-hmm. and what's their perspective. Because you're hearing this through a first person point of view. It's funny because the mismantle books that we've recently um, discussed, the, the theme of trauma kept coming up. And I thought, here's a character who's been traumatized. And so we're not only getting facts from a young character, the story told from the point of view of a very young character, we're getting the story from the point of view of a character that's been very traumatized. Mm. So you're looking at a different time period, but you're also looking from a very specific perspective. Sure. And that made me go, okay, tamper down a little on your emotional response and think about it (laughs) from her her perspective point of view. Mm. And there's even a part in the book where she says, when she looked back, she could hardly remember the rest of the trip memories of it came only in snatches like random pages in a book so her memory of her encoding and 
the way she thinks about people around her and stuff is sketchy mm. because of the trauma she went through. And so I think those are important things that someone who's reading it like a young person might miss mm. and benefit from a discussion about, look, you're hearing the story from this 15 year old. Mm -hmm. She's remembering back about things pre 10 year old. Right. Is she aware of all the influences that are forming her outlook and her point of view and thereby the story you're hearing? Mm. After I had sat with the book for a little bit, those were some thoughts that actually added to the story for me. Well, I want to follow up and get you to clarify that, but I want to make sure, because that will require spoilers, I want to make sure that we announce to our listeners that this is the moment now to pause. So I think that this is as far as we can go without actually digging in. So if you're if you're hesitant to hear spoilers, I'm just giving you a moment to reach for your phone and press pause. So Lara, you're saying that you ended this story with with a great deal of emotion. Unpack that for us. What what are you getting at? What what left you with that kind of emotion? So there are characters that um, exhibit some very reprehensible mm -hmm. attitudes of racism mm -hmm. towards Native Americans and very, very not deeply mentioned, but it's it's kind of lumped in with the whole right. attitude. Also, um, African-Americans. Right. Um, you just pick up that from the dialogue. Yeah, uh, I mean, Aunt Lizzie is crystal clear. Like in, in my review, right. for our listeners sake, in my review, I actually quote one of the most heinous lines that Aunt Lizzie makes. Right. And the sad thing is, it, well, it's it shows the nuance of characters, that there is some amazing things that Aunt Lizzie does. Yeah. But yeah. they She's can hero, coincide but... with some really ugly opinions she holds, some uneducated mm -hmm. and destructive opinions that she holds. But mm -hmm. by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize that those opinions are not held up as an ideal. They're revealed no. as flaws in her character. Yes. And the mm -hmm. other people that, that have similar opinions of her, none of them are to be held as, you know, to be imitated. Right. And so that's what right. I had to sit with was this, mm -hmm. this reflects the truth of attitudes it does not mm -hmm. hold them up as something to copy. And so that's what it, it, her attitudes kind of made me sick. Like when I was done, I felt ill kind of because of the way she acted. And not because she was like um, Ginny's actual aunt and uncle who were just ignorant and mean. Like you, you could sort of lump bad behavior into bad characters and kind of put it in a box. But Aunt Lizzie is very much a hero of the story. She she is the reason why Ginny is able to to thrive in many ways. She she protects Ginny. She takes charge when Ginny needs needs a good and loving influence. And then she has these horrible opinions. And so we have what would be considered a good character who is living with the complexity of her own trauma of watching her best friend be massacred in an Indian attack on their trip west. And so she has now has this bigotry that she has inherited. 
And it mars her character, as you said. And I think that you're right. That's a very uncomfortable place to sit with a character who you otherwise very much want to like and love. And yet she's got these like serious handicaps that prevent you from fully appreciating her. And it 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 left it definitely can leave you unsettled. I think that popular culture would like to stereotype her as the Karen, mm. you know, mm-hmm. that that nosy in your business. This isn't your place. The bigoted attitudes kind of stereotype. But what you what we forget is in this time, community played such a survival role yes. that the Karen helped the community stay alive. And you can't really stereotype her like that. That right. That's not, it's not equivalent. And that's another thing I think might need translation for today's reader, reader, I, younger reader, maybe. In my review, I, I liken her to um, Miss Rachel of, from Miss Rachel from Anna Green Gables. She's Rachel Lind in a lot of ways, who you want to hate in the beginning of the of Anne of Green Gables. But by the end, you, you come to realize that Rachel Lind has really a lot of value and a lot of merit. But as Marilla so amply says, Rachel has her own flaws. And isn't that really pretty human? Um, so I, I like that there's a complexity of character there, as Tanya was saying in the beginning. I appreciate that with this kind of a story that you have the racism that to us is just reprehensible. How could people have even thought like that? But I think we need to know that they did. And then, But at the mm-hmm. end, we didn't solve all that. Like suddenly in the 1840s, all these people had a revelation. We could have had the civil rights movement right then if it hadn't been so mm-hmm. isolated or whatever. It's it's more realistic that they, they go on with their little prejudices and their big hearts and and build the nation. We don't have to love mm-hmm. everything they do and every everything they believe and everything they say to be able to appreciate that this is a different time and place. And you don't fix that kind of thing by the end of a 150-page book and, and have it be realistic at all. And that these are real people. Right. While this story might be fiction, it's a very accurate depiction of a very real time. And so... There were going to be people who were going to have a whole variety of opinions, some reprehensible, most very good. And this is going to be reality. It is a it's a it's the encapsulation of reality. Right. And it's not that different than our time in many ways. Right. In that regard. And Lampman was very close to this time. Whether she knew people of that time or not, she knew people who knew them and was getting her stories mm-hmm. from her the place where she lived and the people she knew. So she's very realistic, whatever setting she puts her people in. And we can even see Ginny has some opinions that are of their time. Um, Ginny will not, when we think about how Ginny will not let Nona leave her home until she's properly married, and her idea of what properly married is, is going to differ vastly from a lot of other people's ideas of properly married. Right. Just to show that even Ginny has her own value system in which she is operating. It happens to be a really good one. I, I don't think that there's anything reprehensible about Ginny, but it shows that every character is not without their little idiosyncrasies. Right, because she's willing to impose that on someone else who has a completely different belief system. Because there's the there's the, the hill I'll die on. 
And Nona's been very clear with Ginny that she doesn't want that Christ person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not the religion that Nona wants. Right. And yet Ginny insisted, well, and I'm it's, I'm morally accountable for you, so no, you can't leave. And she's until 15. You are married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just feel really frustrated with conversations about westward expansion because I feel like it's really easy to make judgment in the safety that we experience in the United States today. We all live in really relative safety compared to even most people in the world. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. can do all kinds of things without thinking that our child might be kidnapped or we might be murdered today. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's frustrating to me, the level of um, judgment that's made without really delving into the nuance of that time period. And the truth of the matter is, is there was, two cultures. And even then, that is such a stereotype to say there's white culture and Native American culture, because inside of that, you have a lot of different cultures inside of that. And that includes your ethnic cultures, your religious cultures, Mm -hmm. personal family cultures. Mm -hmm. So you have all this complexity. Mm -hmm. And Judd and I started watching a show called 1883. (sighs) And uh, it's a little too violent for me, I'm going to be honest. And the, the one thing I said was, when we talk about savage, mm-hmm. everyone was savage. It was a kill or be killed. Yes, it it was. was, I have my own self first and my own family first. Mm-hmm. And you see Tim McGraw's character basically saying, I only, I am here to protect me and I mine. My, mm-hmm. And I can do nothing but that. Mm-hmm. And so then you have this, you see this clashing. And it just really brought it to awareness for me because it makes everything, it helps you see that things are gray. This is what Lampman's showing you. You have this broader context of the clashing of two cultures, and then you're going to come down, and she's going to she's going to introduce you to some very real people. Mm-hmm. And the first thing she's going to do with Aunt Lizzie is she's going to help you fall in love with Aunt Lizzie. Yes. Then she's going to show you Aunt Lizzie has some ideas that are going to make you want to vomit. Yes. Then she's going to show you Aunt Lizzie has trauma. Yes. Huge. Huge trauma. The actual quote is right here. I want to share this. So Jep says, "People are funny." Mm-hmm. They make up their minds about something. Then they get together and talk, and the whole thing gets bigger and bigger. People who weren't even there take sides, and they blame others that didn't have anything to do with it. Aunt Lizzie's one of the worst, maybe the worst, because she won't never let it alone. Her best friend was killed by an arrow on the way out. She can't remember that our people were shooting back, and some of the Indians got it too. Mm-hmm. So immediately, though, I mean, had, I've never had a friend murdered. No. In front of you. In front of me. Mm-hmm. Or seen other people murdered or scalped. Mm-hmm. And the natives had it on their side too. Mm-hmm. One of the people that they loved. What would you think? Mm-hmm. How would that trauma profoundly affect your filter for the rest of your life without some kind of healing? And if that culture was so drastically different, which it was, you might always be on guard. Mm-hmm. You might always just say, I can never trust. And then you even see it. In Nona, where she constantly just says, white man lies, mm-hmm. white man lies. Well, not all white men lie. No. In fact, she's living with Ginny, who's not lying to her, right. who completely protects her. Right. And in the end, there's some beautiful things that happen mm-hmm. with her as well. Mm-hmm. So she just shows you everybody has hurt, big hurt mm-hmm. in their lives. And that hurt is contributing to their thought processes. And ultimately even to how they protect themselves. Yeah. And like Laura said, like everyone's in survival. The whole community, people are just trying to survive. 
Yeah, I was going to say, even Cousin Maddie, who we probably all love to hate because she's such a <laughs> difficult person mm-hmm. and who really doesn't treat Ginny very well, is the person who really teaches Ginny how to survive. Yeah, She learns how to take care of herself and how to do all of the things she needs to do out west because when she was growing up with her parents I think it said she didn't even have to do the dishes I mean she was growing up in comfort so kind of be like one of us thrown out into the west in the 1840s you'd have a lot to learn and she learned it from cousin Maddie who she said I think even you know cousin Maddie did her share of the work too yeah she was a hard driver and not somebody you'd you know necessarily want to be living with but they're all there's this nuance with all the characters I think is what you see And it begs the question, what happened to Cousin Maddie to make her so? And I think that that's what this book really does is it causes you to ask that question about each character. Not right away, but once you get to know them a little bit better, you think, okay, there are layers here. I can't take this at face value level at all. I think one of the most interesting things about Maddie was the the way she let her own two sons off the hook. And in, in a society where hard work and needing to know how to survive really could be the difference between life and death. She was leaving them completely unequipped. She didn't have the same expectations of them that she had of Jenny. And it was easy to make Jenny do work. Maybe they were just difficult kids and maybe that's why it was just more than between all the work she needed to get done and, you know, them being difficult. Maybe that was part of the issue. But she seemed to have an expectation that men in general were just going to let her down. She had a husband she was was not proud of. And so she kind of took that and like seemed to place that onto her sons. They weren't going to do anything worthwhile either. And so she, she I found her to be, yes, your your initial reaction is, I can't stand this lady. But then you start to wonder, what's her backstory? That makes her make these choices? Why did she marry this guy in the first that she's Mm -hmm. so ashamed of later? Mm -hmm. I really felt like this one in these ways reminds me of Flannery O'Connor because the the whole going off to college and then he comes back and marries Maddie and he's just, you know, he just is useless. And Flannery O'Connor is always talking about that those who go off to college and she's including herself in that are always, they end up coming home kind of useless. And I think about Flannery O'Connor's short story, Greenleaf. Diane, do you remember that one with the cow? <laughs> the episode, the, the short story with the bull. And, mm-hmm. you know, her two sons are useless. But the guy who works on her property, his two sons, who she had a hand in raising, well, they're very competent. And it's just so funny to see that she she wouldn't raise her own, but she was raising another person's sons to be useful and valuable. Well, there is something to be said, and it was an attitude that was with newly educated generations, Mm. that the work of your hands is not equal to the work of your mind. Right. And so she may have said, my husband's educated. My sons aren't going to learn this kind of work. That's demeaning. Mm. Whereas this girl who is basically, you know, indentured labor Mm -hmm. is going to do that demeaning work when in reality, in their situation, that equipped her to succeed and survive. Right. And she has a bit of that prejudice, too, because she's attracted to the pastor who is this learned man and doesn't even see Jeff, who wants to be a farmer, 
she doesn't even consider him as like somebody she might be interested in. Agreed. Yeah, when you say she, you mean Jenny. Jenny, yeah. The, yeah, Jenny. Not, yeah, not Maddie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. And that's one of the things I loved about Matt, uh, Jenny is that she grows. Mm. She has every reason to assume all the prejudices from all the negative people around her. She has trauma. She has the constant, she was young. She has the the negative feeding from her aunt and uncle and then the bad opinions from um, Aunt Lizzie. But she somehow sees the difference. Well, and I think the reason why is her relationship with Nona is that Lampman provides her an opportunity to be proved wrong. <sighs> so you remember the scene where, so Ginny's been told, well, the Indians, they're just going to lie. They just steal from you. You can't trust them over and over and over again. That's what she gets told. But here she is. She's desperate and she needs someone to be with her through the winter. Yeah. She can't stay alone. And she also has compassion, I think, yes. right? She sees her. She also assumes that uh, Stephen Mayhew gave permission for her to be on the property, for Nona to be on the property. Well, do you remember the day when she comes back and Nona is gone yes. and the gun is gone and some other things are gone and her mind immediately goes to, well, she robbed me. She's an Indian. Mm -hmm. So she robbed me. Mm -hmm. She stole from me. Mm -hmm. She can't be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, I don't know, is it a few hours later yeah. or something? Here comes Nona. With babe, I mean, and I'm just thinking, oh, girlfriend, you are every woman's dream because she took a baby and a gun, went out and killed herself a deer and brought it back. <laughs> that is, yeah. I am woman, hear me roar if we have not heard, seen one, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, she is amazing. <laughs> and she's also showing Ginny, you can do this. Mm -hmm. Like, you may not have what the skills that Nona has learned. But you can. Mm -hmm. You could learn that. You could take care of yourself. And I'm thinking, you guys, I've seen people hunt deer and skin deer and do that whole process. That's no joke. I just, I'm just saying, no joke. So Nona does it. She skins the deer. She's going to make a hide. She's going to make shoes. I mean, she has all these things. And then if you remember where Ginny was also told that in order to make the moccasins, they chew the hide and they do weird things. So she's watching. How does she do that? Is any of that true? And then sh she's shown, no, none of that is true. And it, it just is so subtle how Lampman provides this environment where here's these, these ideas. Ginny starts to assume them because why would she not assume that's the truth? She's 15. That's what's been told. She has seen some, some things that are traumatic. And then she's given a person in her life, not some ideal, not some philosophy, but an actual person who shows her something different. And they get to do that for each other. Right. Because you can see where Lizzie would get a prejudice against Indians. You can have a prejudice against a group. Mm -hmm. She didn't know or see probably who shot her friend with the arrow. That was just a bad guy. Then try to look that an Indian in the face and feel the same feelings that Aunt Lizzie was telling her she should feel. Now you got a person. And you got a person with a baby. It's a little bit different than just thinking, well, all of this group does one thing. It doesn't work that way. These are people when you look in their faces. That just goes to show you, I think, over and over again, you see the the danger of mob mentality. And it, and it doesn't have to be like your, the idea of a mob altogether violent. It can just be 
the prevailing idea that gets blasted. And I think with social media today, you get the effect of a mob mentality without the perception of the actual mob. It's like subtle. And, and like you said, when you take those blasted ideas that come from all directions, like a mob, but it's not on social media, and you put it with a face of someone you know in particular, they break down. To take that idea and see it here and then, you know, move that to today's society would be a great thinking exercise for Yeah, reader. and I think one of the other things we've lost about those times is that we're so much, we're sort of in that mob without knowing it and then thinking, I just do whatever I want to. Nobody's going to tell me how to behave. There's, I can, you know, no rules for me. And kind of criticize a small community like that where there's a lot of social pressure to behave in a certain way. And I think that we a lot of times forget that there is real value in social pressure to behave a certain way if it's a good way because it keeps everybody on the straight and narrow. Whatever your beliefs are, if there's a little bit of neighborhood pressure to be a decent person, that kept society civilized for a long time, even if they didn't have the exact same beliefs we did. It's just fitting in that can be good or bad, but we need some of that social pressure. And I think that with a lot of the social media now, we don't feel that in the same way, that in, in a way that's actually productive. Well, you know, Tanya, you were saying at the beginning of the conversation about how much conversations about the West can be frustrating. And I agree with you. I think so often we have this idealized version that the West was this place where it was a new experiment and people were trying new things. But in fact, the West was wild and dangerous until the wagon trains started coming, until the people started settling it. What was the thing everybody realized was missing when they went to this brave new Western world? Culture. Families. The rules. Families. The units that would require neighborliness and citizenry and the opportunity for people to share ideas and interact with each other in a way that was productive the organization that happens when people need to live with each other means that you still have to have some kind of agreed upon moral standards. And they were figuring it out. They 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 definitely were making mistakes. We are making mistakes today. We are a far cry today from utopia. So it's interesting to see that here they are with their prejudices and with 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 their troubles. But they're still trying to find that place where people can get along well and safely and thrive. I think there's a saying that says you don't need laws if you live by yourself on an island. <laughs> you know, it's only when you're in community that you start to need laws. Mm -hmm. And you think when they moved out there, initially, you could be hundreds of miles from your, your nearest, nearest neighbor, neighbor mm -hmm. you know, and so there wasn't really the need for those laws and social structure. But then the more people that moved out there, that need became more apparent. And and then the more you ran into people with different grounding assumptions, mm -hmm. you know, experiences mm -hmm. that was like, what does it mean to have a sacred marriage? Mm -hmm. Well, what it meant to Jenny was something completely different than what it meant to Nona. Yeah. 
And then even what it meant to the greasy old man that was married to Nona. To Nona. What I thought it was interesting about that whole thing was the minds of Jim, her neighbor, and Ginny, and probably that our whole community was that the marriage was not legitimate unless it was a Christian marriage. And so he was, you know, living with Nona and had a child with her and was basically married to her, but it wasn't a Christian marriage. And so he felt perfectly fine leaving her and marrying a white woman in a church, which was now he's officially married. Quote. And Ginny, I think one part, you know, when she really wants Nona and Charlie to have a Christian wedding ceremony, I went back and read this again and realized one of the things she says was that she didn't want Jim to be able to take Nona back after she goes back to her tribe. And if she, you know, has a legitimate Christian marriage, then Jim can't just take her back. She's, she's already married. I thought that was just like, you know, like this clashing of cultures and these sort of assumptions, like marriage is a marriage if it's not in a church, that kind of thing. But that was the approved standard for marriage at that time. Yeah. I love that you point that out, that truly she was affording Nona a measure of legal protection. And I think because Nona accepted her as a friend, she was willing to comply. She was legally protecting her from the white man's point of view. Right. Right. Using white man's law to protect the Malalan from the white man. I thought that was good. I think she was wanting maybe Jim to step up and do what she thought was the right thing on his part. And in the end, he did what was best for Nona and for himself. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Ginny says, well, you have a child with her. Mm -hmm. And this is something where I think Latman points out maybe some Native American ideology that is better than the Caucasian ideology, because he said, my son will be treated as a whole person Mm -hmm. with them. Yes. He won't be here. That's right. And I was like, oh, ouch. Yes. That's painful. Yes. Because that, sh- that should be true of both cultures, right? That the child would be treated as a whole person and wouldn't be treated as a half. But that's which is- Jim's perception. That's not Nona's perception. Nona is afraid if she goes home to the tribe, they won't accept her and her son. Well, no, I thought Nona said she didn't want to go back because she would have to admit she was wrong. But I, I read in that, and, and perhaps I'm wrong, but I read in that that she, was fe- that she was living in fear of refusal, that they would maybe not take her back because the white man took her and because she left them. Oh, interesting. That, that, I did not read that in it. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's just, that was just my perception. I'll have to read it, reread it too because I, feel, I felt like Tanya that for her it was a pride issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of going back, not a fear. that they wouldn't take her. She just didn't want to admit mm-hmm. she had messed up. Either way, Jim was basically saying, Nona being married, however they're going to be known as spouses in her tribe, that child was still going to be accepted. Yes, yes. yes. Well, that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And it's an ugly thing that the child won't be here. Correct. Absolutely. That's so interesting because I just got done reading and reviewing Three Knocks on the Wall, which is also her book. And without getting into a discussion about that one, there's quite a bit of, well, (laughs) the story is based on the treatment of the children Mm -hmm. of illegitimate relationships where they are blamed for them. And in a total white culture in a little town in Oregon and sort of the same area, but much later, 
the prejudice against the children is devastating. And so yeah. the part of the story that you're talking about is sort of incidental to the story, but mm-hmm. then she goes mm-hmm. and develops it like to the nth degree in another story Yeah, and really, yeah. really chews on that one for a long time. And look at the many decades that passed between those two stories mm-hmm. and this was still a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a clearly Lapman feels that this is a great, great sin of of mankind in general and in the West in particular. Yeah. And yet she also shows us some characters that have some better understanding. Yeah. Whether you like Jim or not, he has some interesting understanding of how he feels about Native Americans and how he feels like he also has to have a place in his own culture. Mm -hmm. So he's a man trying to have one foot in two worlds and it's pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. But with Jeth, she shows you a boy who was raised by parents who interacted with Native Americans and he grew up with Native American children and he knows their language and their culture. And because he did as a child, he has some different ideas that he mostly keeps to himself throughout the story, except at one point he says to Ginny, you can't figure Nona out, can you? Mm -hmm. He asked curiously. I was hoping you could. Maybe you never will. And it's not your fault. Understanding people like Nona is something you're either born with or not. Anyway, and then they go on with their conversation. And I thought, that's an interesting idea. (laughs) (laughs) And I think she was coming to a different understanding because she had been living with Nona. Mm -hmm. They had opportunity there. But I think then them together is, it kind of left me with like a sense of hope that them together having children, that they would raise children, seeing a different perspective, seeing a broader perspective, having a greater understanding. And she was so impressed that Jeth could speak known as language and speak to her mm-hmm. and understand her and that he could cue in on quite a few things and dynamics. I, I was, it was such, again, such a slight part of the story because there's so many yes. pieces, right? There's yes. so many people and relationships, but I was wowed by this part of Jeff and what he brought to the story. It's my favorite, my favorite part about him, just, you know, is his ability to live in both worlds. And I I think that he is sort of a quintessentially Western man. You know, his parents were in, his parents were removed from the culture, right? They, they, they lived in an outpost. And so they had to survive with the Malalans there. And so I, I love that he is one of those who sees it from the perspective, not of us versus them, but rather we. And I think that we see that in Ginny as well, because Ginny, you know, she is living on a farm away from town, away from a lot of the cultural influences. She actually sort of defies some of the cultural things in what she does. And so there's this idea that to be in the city is good, but to have separation is also good so that you can form kind of your own way of life with these better opinions. We've talked about how most of the characters in Bargain Bride are very nuanced, Mm -hmm. but Jeth seems like an ideal. Yeah. Like what is, where is his nuance? I mean, we're all human. What's his human side? Well, he doesn't behave perfectly. (laughs) Well. (laughs) Um, Have an 18-year-old boy. He still acts like an 18-year-old boy. Yeah. He, he still says and does things that aren't quite a child and not quite a man. He could have been more intentional with the way he talked to her. He couldn't have 
he could have like not led her on in various ways in like what she thought his intentions were. Mm -hmm. He could have been more clear in some things. Mm -hmm. He essentially kind of ran away. I mean, he did figure out that that probably wasn't a good plan, (laughs) but and I don't think she goes into his storyline. She could have probably written a whole nother book about his storyline, but he's also had trauma. Yes. He's living with an aunt and uncle because he no longer has parents. He's had a similar trauma to Ginny. Mm -hmm. So I think there's probably more to his story that you haven't, you don't see. Mm -hmm. And I think she doesn't make him exactly perfect. And I still think, you know, now you have a 15, almost 16 year old marrying an 18 year old. That's really still hard for me to wrap my brain around. I know that that was the norm for many centuries in a lot of different cultures and still is. So I still think you see that, you know, I just still say it today. I love teenagers. I love young adults. They still lack a fully formed frontal lobe. <laughs> yes. So the decision-making part of their brain is still not there. So I think you can see Jeff as a man growing into a man of character who still doesn't always make the, the best decisions in the moment, which is what you see teenagers and young adults often do is they have no impulse control. So that's what I think you see. And then you, but you can see the hopefulness of them being able to build a life together because of their experiences and because of the things that they're learning, which I think, again, if a if a teenager were to read this story and be able to internalize any of it, there's so much growth opportunity through the story, even though they would never probably experience something like this in their lifetime. And I think teenagers need opportunities to really stretch and grow through the experiences of someone else. I think it's also like just kind of part of the plot because you as the reader are thinking, Jeff, he's such a great guy. Like, Ginny, what's wrong with you? Why are you like not even recognizing him as a possibility and obsessing over this pastor? And I, I think that whole plot line is just really interesting and fun when you see the true character of the pastor and <laughs> yes, <laughs> and just, you know, get to see her sort of finally realize her feelings for, for Jeff and what he's given her through this entire time that she just didn't really see because she just sees him as a friend, somebody who's been helpful to her. On one hand, idealize these figures, these kind of larger than life figures that enabled us to open up the West and at the same time, hold them to a modern day standard. Like nobody would say that Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett were the ideal for marriage. You know, they, they went off and left their like wives for years at a time, you know, and (laughs) they wouldn't know if they were going to come back, but without that kind of narrow focused drive, who knows, you know, us might end it at the Mississippi, you know, Mm -hmm. you, there's kind of, you, you judge people as success or successful or fully formed or developed by today's standards. There's a little bit of that need of that. I I don't have time for this other frontal lobe stuff. I need the, the drive and the impulse of the other to survive in this kind of society. Okay. It's a biological fact. Frontal lobes are not well developed until the mid twenties. So this is a, this is a true fact, but does that necessarily mean that I mean, do you have to have a fully formed frontal lobe in order to make an excellent beginning towards a lifelong committed marriage? I hope not. We were only 19. But that that's exactly my point, Diane. Like, I know of so many people who got married when they were 18, 19, 20, 21, very, by our standards today, very young. 
And they have some of the richest, most beautiful marriages I have seen because there was a growing up together that's literally together. Your brains were being formed and wired together that when paired with reasonable work, reasonable expectation for responsibility, formed then character that molded together like glue or iron sharpening iron. I think today's young people are very, very fortunate in that most of them are not accountable for really meaningful work until they're in their mid-20s. Most of them are going to finish high school, maybe go on to college or something like that, and they're not really going out in the world and carving out an existence for themselves. So they don't have the capacity to make these committed relationships because they don't really have like a committed life yet. They're still exploring. That is the gift and the curse of our time. And I think of their, that time, the gift and the curse was that they had to lean on each other because to exist, Ginny could not have existed for many, many years on her own without a man on that farm. There was no way that that woman could run that farm by herself. She wasn't Nona. <laughs> um, she needed a helpmate. And so to me, it was reasonable that she would choose a suitor who was worth growing up with. We have a hard time today thinking about the fact that there was a time not too long ago when children were trained and, and girls were taught that that's what you're going to do is you're going to grow up and get married and, and you might be really young. So by the time Jenny was 15, it was not unusual to be, to be married at that age. But it's also not shocking to her because she's known for five years that she was already married. So it's a it's a total yes. mindset that we think is just outrageous. I wouldn't do that to my children. Well, are we sure that was bad? Because that was done for thousands of years. Are we right? To a good end. Yeah. Often. Right. Yes. Very often. Probably right. more often than we know because it's the bad ones that get the stories written about them. But what about well, all the millions of... has continued. Yeah. The millions right. and millions of people that it did work for. So in, in the last hundred years or whatever, we've said, that's not right. We shouldn't treat people like that. And it's working so well for us. <laughs> marriage has changed. It used to be that marriage was about partnership and utility as much as other things. Now it is much less that so. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think now we, we want to wait because we want to know who we are before we get married because we don't want to make the mistake and be saddled with somebody we don't necessarily want to have for the rest of our lives. And I mean, I was like 27 when I got married, so I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not being critical of that path. I'm just saying that that's the reality of our time. I see so many who benefited from being married in their very late teens and early 20s because they just realized that this wasn't about well, maybe I'll discover who I am and not like them anymore. No, no, we're going to discover together who we are, and we are going to make this work. Mm-hmm. I just want to share one of the small scenes that I loved out of the whole book. It's something that I aspire to, to truly be able to look beyond myself and have compassion and empathy for others and see another situation and recognize either I'm not alone in my situation or there really is someone that has it worse than mm-hmm. me. And this, to me, just... It was just such a beautiful theme. So this is speaking about Ginny. She wished she had never been born. In the whole territory of Oregon, was there another girl as miserable and unhappy as she? Suddenly, she realized that there was. 
Clutching her shawl about her, she raced outside through the gathering twilight. The next moment, she was pounding on the door of Stephen Mayhew's cabin. Nona, she called. Open the door. Bring your baby and come into the house. It's perfectly safe. I'm all alone. Yay. And in that moment, she overcame any concerns or ideas. Like she went for compassion that there was somebody that had it worse than her, mm-hmm. even that this though this person was from a completely different culture and from one that she didn't even know if she could trust, yeah. to just saying, come in and bring that baby in and it's safe for you and it will be safe for me. And I just thought, that's beautiful. That's the message of the story. Yeah. Like there can be a meeting of the minds. There can be a way to to see each other, to truly see people for who they are, even Aunt Lizzie, to truly see her and have some compassion for how she got to where she is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I'm a religious person, so I don't know what it will take for someone like Aunt Lizzie to overcome that. And I just think that's where the savior comes into play. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hurt for a lot of people that's going to have to be resolved. And it's so messy. Yeah. Right. It's not black and white. It's not good and evil. It's not, this is right. And that is wrong. It, to some degree, it is those things. But it's so intricately messy that this book just showed you all the messiness and leaves you just thinking, well, that's complicated. Because that's real. Mm -hmm. Because it is real. This story could be today, Mm -hmm. just different circumstances, different situations. Mm -hmm. But I do appreciate that. Lampman, she draws out all these different things about the people. And she leaves many of the people happy in the end. And we can look forward Mm -hmm. to... They probably don't all live happily ever after, but there's going to be some happiness. But it's left, we have hope, but she didn't fix everything. And so right. it's it's realistic, right. but, not, but not depressing, uh, you know, because a lot of times life doesn't get fixed. And I think we need to be able to talk about that too. Right this minute, right. everybody is trending toward happiness, but that's not real life. But we can talk about that a no. different day. <laughs> so do you feel like the death of Stephen Mayhew was a bit eucatastrophic? Like it was a little like <laughs> seemed a device of the story to move it forward? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because I kind of was hoping to see how they, I would love to have seen their made story. Made it work. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. But what made this appropriate for a younger reader is that he did die. I think that um, I think that she chose just exactly the right moment to make this as innocent I as 100% possible. I 100% agree. Yeah. Because yeah. I was watching that train going on down the track and thinking, oh, wh- how, how are we telling this story? Yep. <laughs> I, I just didn't want any of those questions. Mm-hmm. Same <laughs> so here. How I, is that going to work out for a kid's book? <laughs> I think, and, and I think it was amazing because his she she really gives the reader and Ginny the gift that we know that Stephen Mayhew has money in his pocket. We have seen the cast iron stove. We have seen the planed wood house. The, the larder is full. He has done every single thing he can to provide for her. There is nothing he left undone. I thought that was very virtuous of him. And he dies... I would say at the peak of virtue. (laughs) Well, ladies, I think this has been a really healthy uh, conversation. I love that as we have done more of these, we have gotten more comfortable with just sort of 
cutting into each other and interrupting and allowing the conversation to go wherever it's going to go. I hope our listeners are enjoying the very organic way in which our conversations evolve. I know I love these. These are some of the my most favorite things that I get to do each month. So I'm really glad we did this. Thank you for joining us today. I hope it doesn't get old for anyone else for us to keep saying that these book clubs are one of the most fun things we do. One of our most favoritist. And um, <laughs> I love this opportunity. And I really appreciate that Tanya and Sarah and Lara were here with us today. Thank you, ladies. Diane, I agree. And it's been really a delight to do the three mismantle books. And we will do the other two mismantle books. But we're not going to tease you with those until they're a little more accessible. So we'll wait until those are released. Uh, but it's really, it was refreshing to change to a totally different type of book this month. And uh, next month, we have yet again a completely different type of book. Uh, I think it's safe to announce that if you don't know, next month's book club discussion is a science fiction selection, Enchantress from the Stars by Sylvia Engdahl. And this one, if you're not a science fiction lover, I beg you to try it anyway. I call this one science fiction for Jane Austen lovers because I think that in this story, it is far more about the philosophy and the relationships than it is about laser guns and spaceships. <laughs> but later this spring, we are doing a favorite of all of ours who have read it. And for those who haven't, I'm sure it will be their favorite as well. Keeper of the Bees Yay. by Gene Stratton Porter. Yay! We can't wait to do that one. So this one was fun because we pretty much all agreed. Uh, next one, I think we're going to not all agree. So that'll be fun. And then Keeper of the Bees will be yet again a different style, a different voice. Fascinatingly, all of the books we have done for Book Club have been by a female author, except for Joan of Arc by Mark Twain but it's about a girl. So that was not by design. It's a happy accident. And maybe that makes sense since we've got five women here talking about these books. <laughs> so, Friends, Bargain Bride was one of those books that was pretty hard to find. And we are so thrilled that Jill Morgan from Purple House Press has reprinted Bargain Bride along with several other Evelyn Sibley Lapman books. So head over to the show notes on our website where you can get the links to the BiblioGuides book records for several Evelyn Sibley Lapman books, as well as links to the Purple House Press website, where you can actually buy these in a bundle. Also, wanted to let you know that we had a really great conversation with Tanya and with Jill Morgan about Evelyn Sibley Lapman, and that is also linked on the show notes and can be found on our website or inside your podcast app. So friends, thank you so very much for listening today. We loved having you join us, but we would love it so much more if you would come and join us. Join us in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. You can find the link in the show notes. We really want to know what you think. It's really a lot of fun to talk to each other, but we get to live through that discussion again and again every time somebody comes into that network and chats with us about the book. So please come. Don't be shy. 